All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh, one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is my good friend and co-host, Marty Frederick. Marty, what's going on, man? I'm doing great, Josh. Hey, Josh, I wanted to ask you, the other day, you had quite the milestone uh, in your in your hockey game. Uh, <laughs> would you like to share with everybody and brag for a minute? Sure. I, I will quickly brag and then we shall move on. But uh, I did. I scored my first ever hat trick uh, last night, actually. Um, so I was quite excited about that. Our team won seven to four um, and it was a good time. So always feels so with, good. So without your hat trick, you guys would have tied. So because sure. of you, they won the game soundly. <laughs> that's that's fantastic. I guess that's how the math works out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had one one in the first period and two in the two in the third. So. I had to round it out. Great job. Right on. (laughs) Sweet. Well, uh, now would be a great time then to go ahead and bring on our guest that Marty and I, both of us, were very excited about. Um, And so, yeah, uh, with us today is N.T. Wright. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Yes, and it's uh, it's nice to be with you. It's the afternoon here in Oxford in England, and uh, uh, thinking about hockey games um, takes me right back, but let's not go there. Awesome. Well, would how would you prefer to be addressed, Professor Wright? Just Tom? What would you like? Uh, it's very difficult. I'm I'm happy with Tom, but if you feel deferential, then Doctor Wright or Professor Wright would be fine. But Tom is easy. <laughs> All right. Sounds Great. good. Well, Tom, we before we get into the content of the podcast, we have a question that we like to ask every guest that comes on the show, um, and that question is, who is your favorite ice hockey team? Oh. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Um, The last time I actually watched a hockey game, it was in Montreal, and uh, it would be the Montreal Canadien, I guess. Um, And uh, we lived in Montreal. So I know that that was they were the ones that um, that I guess my son who came with me on that occasion and I we we watched them Um, insofar as we were following anyone, we would be following them. But I confess that in recent years, um, I, I have heard of it distantly, but I haven't worried too much about it. Sure. Yeah, makes sense. So uh, being in the UK, I'm assuming you're a, a football fan then. And I, if I get it correct, are you a Newcastle fan? 
Yes, it's true. I, I grew up just north of Newcastle on Tyne in the far northeast of England. And where I grew up, pretty well everyone was Newcastle fans because that, that was the regional thing. Um, and uh, deadly rivals with Sunderland who are in the next county down um, because actually it goes back a long way. They were on opposite sides in the Civil War in the 1640s. Oh, wow. And the rivalry between those two cities has continued in one form or another, political, economic, sociological, and now at least it's only football. Oh, yeah. sweet. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, the, the professor who actually introduced me to your work uh, during my time in, at Messiah College, uh, Jay McDermott, uh, oh, yeah. I, I was talking to him and he was like, hey, you, you have to bring up Newcastle. Um, I think he yeah. told me he, he yeah. had emailed you one time, I think, to, to thank you for uh, the day the revolution began and mentioned that he was a Newcastle fan and you were surprised to have an American Newcastle fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, we're, we're, we're in, I mean, we're in mourning at the moment because they were holding Manchester United one all until the last few minutes of the game on Saturday night. And then Manchester scored three goals in the last few minutes. So, oh, wow. like, oh dear, this didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. So, well, okay, we'll write that off. The, oh, usual mantra, ex, the usual mantra is experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. Yeah. <laughs> I, I confess that soccer has not been something that's been a huge part of my life. My sister played, but Josh played oh. for a while when he was in high school. Um, and I, I'll admit that I've always been intrigued by the game. I've always wanted yeah. to get into it, but it's, I, yeah. it's pretty hard over here on this side of the, of the pond, I guess, as yeah. they say. I, I the, guess that's right. I mean, in, in Britain, um, England and Scotland and Wales and Ireland, it's it, Northern Ireland, at least it, it is, it is not just a game. It's not just a sport. It's a major part of the subculture. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, it, what happens on the weekend or indeed midweek with those soccer matches has resonances out. So when Newcastle win on a Saturday, especially if they win big, then the local industries notice that the following Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, productivity goes up. And if they lose, productivity goes down. They can actually tabulate it. Wow. wow. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, Tom, uh, this, so as you, as you know, our show's called Rethinking Faith. And I just wanted to ask you, what is uh, one aspect in your, your long faith journey uh, that you have rethought perhaps the most, or maybe was the most important thing for you to rethink? Oh, goodness. That, that's, that's a difficult question. It um, is. <laughs> hard to, I mean, as I think back through decades of autobiography, um, <laughs> I think probably the, the biggest thing um, which is still in a way taking place is to realize, um, and I've, I've sort of intuited this for years, but it's become more and more clear to me and it forces everything into a different mold, is that whereas most Western Christians think that the object of Christian faith is for us to leave this world and go to be with God, the Bible is actually about God's intention, having created a world and peopled it with humans, that God wants to come and dwell with us. The last scene in the Bible says the dwelling of God is with humans. That's the New Jerusalem when God is there and the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth, not people being taken up from earth to heaven. And because the church has been so soaked in Platonism over many generations, we've tended to assume that the whole point is really this world is rather a shabby old place and too bad we happen to live here at the moment, but, but happily we're off somewhere else. And our spirituality reflects that and lots of other things reflect that. 
the gospel says, John's gospel says, the word became flesh and pitched his tent in our midst, tabernacled in our midst. And that sense of, instead of us going upstairs, it's God coming down to be with us. Mm. That when you actually work that through, it changes everything. And, and so I think that's probably the most seismic shift that's happened in my thinking from my early days till now. Sure. Yeah, that's that's a super great answer. And I, I mean, I remember just for me personally, um, when I read Surprised by Hope, that's the book that, just like you said, shifted everything for me. <laughs> yeah, 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 new heavens, new earth. And, and many, many people have said that to me about Surprised by Hope, that um, I've had, uh, you know, emails, letters, people phone me up, even sometimes stop me in the street to thank me for that book, <laughs> more than any other of my books put together. It's wow. something about that book has sort of struck a chord. Yeah, hmm. wonderful. wonderful. Well, we are here to talk about... Uh, your latest book today, uh, yep. Broken Signpost, Broken How Christianity, yeah. yes, sir, right there, uh, How Christianity Makes Sense of the World, um, which I thought was interesting. You used uh, the Gospel of John as your, your kicking off point, and I was talking to the head pastor of the church that I work at, and he recalled um, a funny story you told in uh, one of your shorter books when you were being interviewed. Uh, for a job position, they asked you about the Gospel of John. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so... Um, do, you want, do you want me to tell the story? Sure, yeah, if you'd like <laughs> yeah. to. Well, um, my wife doesn't like me telling the story, oh. but it is, <laughs> it is what I said, because I, I was very young, and it was the first serious academic job I was being interviewed for, and I'd figured out ahead of time the questions they were likely to ask me, because my doctorate was on Paul, and I'd done some work on historical Jesus, but I hadn't really gotten into John at all. But I used to preach from John regularly, and I was very into it from a personal point of view. And so I knew that they would ask me about John, because it's the, the, the third bit of the New Testament after Paul and the synoptics that you naturally would look for. So the professor said, so what about John? And I said, well, I feel about John like I feel about my wife. I love her very much, but I do not claim to understand her. And, and <laughs> the, the, they, they, all, they all laughed and the conversation turned in other directions, but I didn't get the job. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and my, my wife was not best pleased when, when she heard that I'd said that. Uh, well, do you feel a little bit better about John now? <laughs> um, yeah, um, yes, I do. I mean, John is still amazingly rich and multi-layered and I think I see much more in John now than I did 35 years ago whenever that interview was actually probably more, more like 45 years actually. Um, uh, and, and certainly the whole theme of the temple which is absolutely central in John I mean I already quoted John 1 14 the word became flesh and tabernacled pitched his tent in our midst that's a, a temple image of Jesus as the divine presence coming to live in in the temple but the temple is is Israel, is the world, etc. So I see so much more going on with that. And then you chase that through the temple theme and the Jewish festivals. And uh, it is it is truly amazing. And so John is, is at one level, you know, an eight-year-old can read the book and at one level understand most of it. Um, but then you go on and on and on. And I think John is the kind of book that is like it's like life. It's like the gospel. The, the older you get, the more you see in it. It's like, like some of the great pieces of music or art that, you know, you go back to an art gallery and sit in front of a painting that you liked 20 years ago and you see all kinds of different things going on in the painting than you imagined were there first time. And that's mm. certainly how it is with John. Mm. Yeah, that's that's great. And, 
you know, it, when when we when I read this book, so much of at first my question was, okay, why John? You know, of course. But then as I as I read through, <clears throat> it just began to make so much sense and how you tied everything together. Just, I mean, it was beautiful, and so I really appreciated it. Good, um, good. And can yeah. but can I'd love to hear why you wrote this book. <laughs> What was the what was okay. the reason? Okay, there's about three or four things, and I'll try and show you the different strands, and then they happened all to come together. Um, the, you, you may recall that oh, 15 years ago, I wrote a book called Simply Christian. Yeah. Um, yeah. Things published in 2005, and I began that book because it was supposed to be a sort of apologetics book. Now, I don't really do apologetics in the American rationalist sense, and um, I could spell that out later if you like. But I mean, I was interested that the publisher gave this book the subtitle, How Christianity Makes Sense of the World. In other words, the world is causing us puzzles. And when we tell the Christian story, then we can see how that might resolve, which isn't exactly how apologetics is normally done. Mm -hmm. But that was the right subtitle. So in Simply Christian, I took four themes, justice, spirituality, relationships and beauty. And I made the argument that all human beings cross cultures and across time know that these things, broadly speaking, really matter, but also know that we all get them all wrong. We uh, fracture our relationships. We, we, uh, we don't, in fact, do justice when we have the chance, especially if, it's, if we're the guilty party, we try to get off, et cetera, et cetera. And beauty is wonderful, but we trample on it. And at the end of the day, the sunset disappears and it's dark literally and metaphorically. And so those cause puzzles. And in Simply Christian, I was trying to tell very briefly the whole Christian story from Genesis forwards, as it were. Um, and then to say, from this point of view, we can understand why these things are important. These were the right questions to ask, but then uh, why we get them wrong. And now with Jesus and the Spirit, we get a chance to work at getting them right. So that, that was in the back of my mind. But then in 2018, I had to do the Gifford Lectures in Aberdeen University, which is a wonderful opportunity. They don't normally ask biblical scholars to do the Giffords because the Giffords are about natural theology and biblical scholars traditionally don't do that. So I was delighted and I um, set out a whole argument. It's, the book is published as History and Eschatology. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to look at it. Um, when people ask me what's my favorite project of the last decade, I tend to say that was the one, history and eschatology. But that's a big, chunky book. And as the seventh chapter of that book, I took those themes from Simply Christian, but I added three more. So we have justice, spirituality, relationships, and beauty, and then freedom and truth and power. And I ran the same argument, but quite briefly, because it was only one chapter. And then I made an argument about the meaning of the cross, um, which is that when we look at justice and freedom and all the rest, we see them as signposts, which look as if they're pointing up to God, but then they're all broken signposts because we mess them up and they don't in fact get anywhere other than darkness and shame and oh dear, we blew it again. But then the point of the gospel, I argued in that book, is that Jesus himself comes in the story, especially of his death, to the place where justice is denied, freedom is trampled upon, beauty is spoiled, etc., etc. In other words, they are signposts, and precisely in their brokenness, we who know that they're broken and lament over their brokenness, then discover that God has come in our midst to share that brokenness, and that's the meaning of the cross. That, for me, is hugely powerful as an argument. So then, 
Um, my uh, colleague, David Seamoth, who works on the anti-right online courses, which I do, you probably know about them. And in fact, we should perhaps give them a shout out because David and the team work very hard on them, antirightonline.org. Um, David had been chatting to me about this and I had said to him, you know, I could run that as a thought experiment using John as a way in. And he said, great idea, let's try it. So I recorded a few short talks on that. And there is now a course which is available, which is on that. But I hadn't actually turned that into a book. Um, and we were agreed that I should turn it into a book to go with that short online course. <clears throat> and so in spring 2019, I guess about 18 months ago, I sat down when I had a little bit of spare time and I just poured it all out and it took not very long because I'd been thinking about it for so long. And I really, really enjoyed working through the Johannine stuff in much more detail than I had up to that point. And then I sent it off to the publisher and I thought, he's gonna say, what's this? It's a book of philosophical theology and cultural criticism. It's also a book about John, how does that work? And I thought, he's going to say, don't be so silly. This is a mixture of genres and it's much too much. Instead of which my publisher got back to me and said, hey, I really like it. This is creative. Let's do it. Just tweak this bit and do a little bit more on that. So we did that. And so that's that's where we got. Sorry, it's a long answer, but maybe it explains why this book has a slightly odd feel to it, but hopefully a very creative one. Well, and as, as I read through the book, I really was able to pick up on all those different metaphors, how they right. all work themselves together. That's um, great. And and it, you know, I I I have a theological mind. I'm nowhere near yep. the prowess of Josh or yourself. Um, but I I I really I really loved how everything wove itself together. And you good. use sort of like good. threads and tapestry, and that that makes a lot of sense to me. And that's I that's kind of what good. I pictured as I read. So thank you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and then the, just anecdotally, is it? coincidental that there are are seven broken signposts in your book and then in the gospel of john we have the seven signs that's a good question um do you guys do the enneagram do you know what that is yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah okay um well i'm a number seven on the enneagram so oh, maybe me too. Seven, really <laughs> okay okay yeah. well we should give each other a high five on that um i i am um, no that that wasn't actually anything to do with it that's just uh, in a sense trivial but um no, I'd always, uh, when I finished writing Simply Christian 15 years ago, uh, I thought not long afterwards that actually freedom and truth and power belonged in that book as well as justice, spirituality, relationships and beauty. So I had this set of seven already. And then I had run that in the Gifford lectures with uh, as a set of seven without any thought of John and his seven signs. So when I then thought, let's weave this together with John, that was kind of nice, just a bit of resonance. But I mean, they don't go, there's no one on one with the seven signs and the seven signposts. But um, okay, if that kind of, um, give some people a sense of um, intricacy in the book, so be it. Yeah, for sure. So <clears throat> I guess jumping into the signposts, I, I think today we wanted to try and talk about four of them. Yeah. Um, okay. So to not give your whole book away, so everyone should go out and buy the book. It will be well <laughs> worth your time. Um, but the first one we wanted to talk about is justice. And so mm -hmm. I guess what we wanted to do is maybe set up like the world's justice, and then you can kind of talk about how that kind of how that plays out and how you kind of change and shift that metaphor um so for from our perspective the the justice in the world is getting vengeance holding grudges 
um, how we kind of as human beings see justice. We, we want to get our own justice. Um, but can you talk a little bit about how that's a broken signpost for us? Yeah. Um, yes, I mean, people, humans do want to get revenge when something bad's been done to them. But I think, I think that there's, there's a nobler version of that, that, that when something has gone radically wrong in, in a, a community or um, whether it's a nasty road accident or whatever it is, the people who have suffered want more than revenge. They want a sense that from some point of view, at least the world has been put back into a stable place. People talk about needing to get closure. There's a sense of unfulfilled business, which I think is more than simply revenge. You know, you did something nasty to me and I want to do something nasty back to you. That is quickly where it gets. But, but there is a sense, which I think is deep in the Hebrew Bible, actually, of, of the society needing to be brought back to uh, an equanimity, to a balance, to a stability, uh, rather than being shifted over in favor of this or that person. And that's why in the Hebrew Bible, the, the passion for justice um, includes particularly for the orphans and the widows and the poor and the vulnerable and the stranger, etc. Because if you're not careful, they are the ones who will miss out. They are the ones who will, who, upon whom the powerful will trample. And that's when the judge has to come in and say, no, you can't treat people like that. I will rescue this widow, this orphan, whatever. And one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 72, is all about this is the messianic task. When the true king comes, he will do justice for the orphan and the widow. And this is why the whole creation is going to celebrate, because justice in that sense of everything being put right at last is what it's all about. So our human sense of a desire for vengeance and, and you know, somebody punches me on the nose, I want to go and punch them on the nose. Um, th this is the low grade local version, as it were, of that desire that everything be put right. But then even at that level, um, we mess it up because if there is some kind of a lawsuit, we're always tempted to push our own point of view more than actually it, it deserves and to play down the other person's point of view because it becomes a contest and we want to win and we don't want to be shamed into, into losing. Um, and so, uh, and people will hide evidence that might go against them or for their opponent and so on. So the, the, the point about justice being broken is not simply that a desire for vengeance can be a very dangerous and damaging thing, but it's, it's a readiness, um, even while saying we want justice, it's a readiness to distort justice in one's own favor. And particularly when you look at international um, relations, um, whether it's you know, America and the rest of the world or Britain and the rest of the world or Europe and Russia and China or whatever, um, we all know that it would be good to have everything in balance and to be able to agree on a broad policy and how we all think the world ought to be run. And then we all know that we all will put our elbow in the scales um, to make sure that our own trade deals are coming out on top or whatever it is. So that's the brokenness of the signpost. And it's at that point where John's gospel comes in because so much of John's gospel is about justice. It's about a trial. Jesus is on trial in John's gospel. Um, constantly people are accusing him and he is constantly summoning witnesses. My father witnesses for me, the works that I do witness uh, um, for me, etc. And if you won't believe this, believe that. And, and it's as though there's a trial building up until the point where Jesus stands there with Pontius Pilate and we have the real trial, but actually we realize that the whole gospel has been about that. 
So when Pilate's verdict goes against Jesus, we know having followed the story that this is precisely the denial of justice. And so though the resurrection story doesn't say so in so many words, because John as a good writer often doesn't tell you the conclusion you should draw, that's frequent in the gospel. When Jesus is raised from the dead, we all know that this is God's vindication of Jesus. The end of the whole trial, which has been going on throughout the whole gospel, God has the last word and he says, this really is my son, my beloved. Um, and so, so then we have a sense of following Jesus means being part of God's project to put the whole world right. Okay, he's giving us his spirit. Where do we sign on to make this happen? So that, that's how the argument runs. Yeah, and as, as you talked about justice throughout the book, I was regularly thinking about just my own children and I, I get I get a chance to see justice in in what they would describe as a lack of justice um, executed every day. <laughs> yeah, 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 of course, of course, yeah. because, and, because children characteristically say that's not fair, meaning right. I wanted that um, toy or sweet or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, and so, and, and so as I was reading through this, so much of it was clarity and coming together for me, but, but I also cool. really appreciated how you just now talked about you know, it's not necessarily just, you know, between me and another person, but it could, it could be ju how justice is executed between large groups of people or across countries or borderlines. And that I think oftentimes, especially, you know, I'm, I'm sure the world is watching what's happening in the United States over the last six Sadly, months. yes, yeah. absolutely. I mean, one of the oddities here, I will just drop this in, is that what happens in your election will affect the rest of the world. But strangely, only Americans get to vote in this election. Isn't yeah. that <laughs> That's correct. And, and, and I think about things like that. But then I also think about, you know, just the way that racial tensions have run so high again course, in our country. And um justice does not it just doesn't seem to be being served yeah. Uh, yeah, in yeah. any capacity absolutely we and i would quickly say we have our own versions of that in the uk as well we don't have the same 19th century history with it as you do we have a long and different history but it comes out just the same when a largely white police force stop and search black people perfectly innocently driving cars etc we've had a few high profile cases like that in Britain. So it isn't a question of the rest of the world pointing the finger at America. We're all in this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the, the, the calls for justice, the restoration, redemption of all things, creation, new creation within scripture. I've, I have a buddy named Dan who um, has a, a more progressive leaning podcast called uh, You Have Permission. And he makes a theological argument for why he believes in the afterlife because he doesn't know what he believes about it but he says we have a just god and if you look around the world it's no surprise that right now it is not just and so there has to be something for me i say well the restoration and redemption of all things as you know i stole from you um but yeah i i just think it's 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 an interesting uh yeah 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 and of course of course the word dan itself Hebrew is, is the judge. Um, <laughs> Interesting. Um, so, so you, you can tell him that. But um, yeah, it's really important that because when I wrote the big book on resurrection, um, the resurrection of the Son of God, which is nearly 20 years ago now, I was working on that. Um, one of the things that really jumped out at me is that both in Judaism and in Christianity, if you believe that God is the good creator, and if you believe that God is the God of justice, you will end up with resurrection. 
because God is going to put the world right. And if he's created this world and made it good, then his putting of the world right will involve putting bodies, putting the world, the, the created world back to rights, as we would say in, mm. in Britain. Um, and it's very interesting that both rabbinic Judaism and mainstream Christianity has hung on to the creator and the judge, the putting right judge, and therefore has always emphasized resurrection, um, which I find that fascinating. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. <clears throat> I also, um, another uh, one of your signposts that you point out, it's actually uh, one of my favorites because I think it's one of the largest themes in John is is that of love. Um, and yeah, very much so. I think uh, John is is perhaps my favorite um, of the Gospels. But yeah, today, uh, love gets thrown around a lot. Uh, we can love our wife, or we can love pizza, <laughs> or we can we can love God, or we can love our car. Uh, so, what what role does love play in all of this? Yeah, I, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. The word love. I think I say in my book on virtue. That's after you believe. Um, that, that, that love is trying to do far too many jobs at once, our word love, and that somebody really needs to sit it down and teach it how to delegate. Um, but that's not going to happen anytime soon in the English language. I mean, famously, the Greeks had several words for it. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves, um, uh, uh, showing that the, there were four Greek words that we regularly translate as love, which mean quite different things, likings and loves for the subhuman, um, the, the erotic love, um, a friendship, and then the, the big one, agape, which in the New Testament comes out as really the self-giving love of God to which we are called to respond with a self-giving love. Um, but even then, that's, that's not enough. We need more nuances. And so, yes, um, when people say love actually, or, or um, all you need is love or whatever, um, what exactly is going on here? Um, and the so-called summer of love in 1968, before you guys were born, I suspect, but I remember it well. I was, I guess, um, 18 at the time. Um, th this, this was basically just an, uh, a festival of eroticism. And it, was, and it was people doing drugs and people hanging out and listening to rock music and then um, going off and sleeping together and so on. And um, a lot of people looked at that and said, how can you use the word love like that? Um, when actually this makes it just sordid, because a lot of people get hurt in that kind of thing, and so on and so forth. So um, with the word love, yes, there are all sorts of oddities. I, I when I was, I think when I was writing this chapter, I, I, for fun, I leafed through the Oxford Book of English Verse. I mean, I love poetry anyway, but I went through and saw just what a high proportion of the great poems in the English language are to a lesser or greater extent inspired by the phenomenon of human love, particularly the human falling in love or sustaining a falling in love or uh, married love or whatever. And then of course the tragedy when either the love dies or one of the people or both of the people die. Um, and so that there's a sense that, uh, that, that, that that wonderful charge, electric charge of love um, which really seems to ennoble us and make us more than we are and take us, as we say, out of ourselves, it lets us down. We can't sustain it. It, it, it comes crashing to the ground. And, and classically, people in the days when people got married first and then lived together afterwards, I know that's very old fashioned, but in those days, people talked about the honeymoon period when two people who have fallen in love have an early period when everything seems to be wonderful and this is just great and we wanted to go on forever and ever 
And then, of course, they have to go and earn a living and then they have children to bring up and so on. And it's, it's hard. And the early form of love is the energy needed to sustain the relationship through the long years when it doesn't necessarily feel like that. There will be peaks and troughs, but then that early love has to turn into something else, a stickability kind of love. And sometimes, as we know, tragically, that doesn't happen. And certainly over my lifetime, I've watched the divorce rate just go up and up and up. And I see as a pastor, the brokenness of human beings, both the couple themselves and the children and the grandchildren and the stepchildren and, and, and. And I look at then the long-term fallout from when people have imagined that romantic or erotic love is all you need and then tried to live like that and found that it doesn't work. So, and, and this is why some people become very cynical. Um, back in my period of rock music, Paul Simon had a song, I am a rock, I am an island, when um, the, the whole song was about, if only I had never fallen in love, I would never have needed to cry, to weep, I would never have been sad. So I'm just gonna harden my heart. I'm not gonna do that love stuff again. And of course, we know that <laughs> anyone who says that is about to bump into somebody with whom they will fall even more helplessly in love than before. And so it goes around. So, so that, that sense of love, which ennobles us, draws us out of ourselves, but then we're all aware either it lets us down or we let it down. And so in the Gospel of John, you get this fantastic love story that John 13, one sums it up, that's the turning point in the middle of the Gospel that Jesus having loved his own who were in the world, that's a sum, of, sum up of chapters one to 12, he loved them right to the bitter end. And that's the sum up of chapters 13 to 19. Um, and so even though John doesn't say much about love after that, a bit in the farewell discourses, we know that when Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate and when he goes to the cross, this is to be seen as the act of love, which is the very embodiment of God's love. In other words, we know that love lets us down and Jesus has come to the place of being let down, of having one friend deny him and another friend betray him and so on. And this is where Jesus comes to the place where love has collapsed in a little heap in order then as the supreme act of love to rescue us at that point. I, I'm sorry, I'm preaching you a whole sermon here, but I hope you you take the point. Yeah, no, it's 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 beautiful, and it. Um, I love. I mean, this, like I said, this is is perhaps one of my my favorite, if not my favorite, um, signposts that you point out, especially the the bit with uh, love incarnate. Um, so I I have some Anabaptisty kind of tendencies, um, and so I hope, take, I hope you're taking something for that. Yeah. <laughs> And so the, the, but the Jesus centeredness is, is important to me. And so I love just the idea of, of um, Jesus is the ultimate uh, revelation of, of who God is. And so if, if, yeah. And so if you want to know, you know, what God looks like, look to the person of Jesus. And so I often wonder um, what, how would Christianity look different today, perhaps if um, we read Paul through the lens of Jesus rather than Jesus through the lens of Paul. I think we've flipped yes. it. Absolutely. And uh, I suppose I have spent much of my adult life 
trying to make that point. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I worked on Paul academically before I started working on historical Jesus issues academically. But a friend of mine in America said, said, if you read Paul first, you'll read Jesus wrong. And if you read Jesus first, you'll read Paul differently. And uh, though I didn't agree with him in terms of how, the, how he was working that out, I think that's actually right. And I, I found over the years that most Western Christians do not actually read the Gospels for the story of the inauguration of the kingdom of God. That is really significant. We read the Gospels as the bits and pieces of Jesus' life which illustrate what we take to be Paul's theology of salvation. And so actually there's not much difference between the normal evangelical reading of the Gospels and say a German scholar like Rudolf Bultmann who pulled them apart and said this is a reflection of this bit of the church's faith and that bit is a reflection of something that was necessary in the early church etc and the only difference is that the evangelicals tend to say that it probably happened because they have a theology of scripture which say it should have happened and Bultmann wasn't bothered about that but the way they treat them theologically is the same and the result is we lose the theology of the kingdom of God as God's saving sovereign rule already inaugurated through Jesus' death and resurrection. And if you take that and then go to Paul, you see Paul saying, phew, glad you guys have caught up. Now we can talk about all those other things like justification, which mean what they mean within the context of Jesus having already done the great act of love through which God's sovereignty has been instantiated in the world. Yeah, yeah, and I think then what happens too is that explains why a lot of times uh, within Western or American evangelicalism, we have the separation of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Everybody wants Absolutely. the Savior bit, but they don't Absolutely. want the Lord aspect. Absolutely. Or if they do want the Lord, it's kind of later on. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that when he comes again, he'll be Lord then. Um, but it's very, very clear. I mean, the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus, the risen Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It isn't just in heaven, it's on earth as well, and has been given, not just will be given. And then the task of the church has, ought to be to figure out what might that authority look like in practice now. And it goes back to the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, here's your blueprint, here, here is my spirit, now go ahead and live like that, and you'll see how God's power changes the world through human beings being transformed to be for the world what Jesus himself was. Yeah. And, you know, I, I loved the, the, way, the way you talked about, you used a metaphor of a pyramid being turned upside down. Um, and to me, that was just so beautiful. I, I mean, I guess I'd, I'd thought of it that way, but I hadn't thought of it that way specifically. <laughs> um, just, just the idea that everything is resting on the love of Jesus. Everything yeah. in the entire world is resting on that pyramid turned upside down. Um, that's just so beautiful. Yes, it's, I mean, in technical theological terms, this is what people talk about in terms of, quote, the scandal of particularity. Um, yeah. So often post 18th century, we assume that if there is a God who acts in the world, he ought to do so in a kind of egalitarian manner, which would just be the same, identical everywhere. How dare he act like this here and not do the same thing over there? But somehow it works with that pyramid thing that God has to do it in the one place, close up and personal. But then by, I mean, this is why you have to have a strong theology of the spirit for the church's mission there. But then once that's done, he commissions his followers to be for the world 
what Jesus himself was for Israel. And I say that at various points in the book because it's one of the great verses in John 20 when Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Mm. Well, and so that, yeah, that I love that. I wanted to move on then to the next signpost of beauty. Um, ah, and, yes. and, I, and I love how we, in our world, we, we look at specific things in beauty. And sometimes we're smart enough and wise enough to see how the beauty of this or of that can remind us of God. But a lot of times we see beauty in our own eyes, and then we just let it be at that. We, we, we never correlate God with that. Um, yes. Can you talk a little bit about that broken signpost? Yes, yes. And and what it's reminding me of is uh, I have one or two friends uh, who have written to me about this just recently. And one, a young woman in her 30s, who I don't know that well, but she's read my books and emails me from time to time, um, who says that when she has asked her female friends about beauty and the notion of beauty, uh, what they all tend to think about is the problem of the present culture's image of female beauty and the female attractiveness that goes with female beauty and how they feel imprisoned and trapped because life becomes for women in today's culture almost a competition. Can I really be beautiful enough to warrant, if not a place on the front cover of Vogue, at least to be able to walk down the street and have people admire me, but then that's problematic as well for all sorts of other reasons. And I confess that until she said all this to me, I hadn't really thought of it like that. I mean, you know, I will admire uh, human beauty as much as anyone else will, but I wanted to paint a much bigger picture. And I fear that it's a, a sign of sickness in our culture, perhaps precisely the brokenness of the signpost, that some people have taken the notion of beauty and reduced it to just one type of beauty for one type of purpose or reason, instead of listening to great music, instead of, as I start the chapter, watching the moon rise out of the sea and just standing in awe uh, uh, at, the, at the tremendousness of it, um, or looking long and hard at the beauty of a small flower, or looking at the beauty of the, the unaffected smile of delight of a small child. And there's, the world is full of beauty in so many ways. And yet precisely, we know that the clouds roll in and the moon disappears. We know that the child will trip and hurt himself and, and the, the smile will disappear, uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. The flower will get trampled on by a passing cow or something. We say, um, and here's, here's the puzzle. Is beauty just meant to be something which nudges us to say, maybe there's something more, and then it gets snatched away from us. And, and, and the, the, the whole of the Bible says, no, God has made this wonderful world and he's gonna remake it. And that's what the story is all about. And, and I loved how you, how you added in, I had never thought of it this way before, ever, but you, you took the story of Jesus' resurrection and looked at that through the lens of beauty and yeah, yeah, that that was so groundbreaking for me personally, just in my own faith. I think Josh asked you earlier the the, the part of your faith that you've most recently re rethought, and that I think that would be that for me. And just how yes, that yes. like to look at it through the lens of beauty was amazing. It, it is extraordinary, isn't it? If if one is alive to the beauty of the natural world, then as one of the Psalms says. God makes the outgoings of the morning and evening to praise him. Isn't that a wonderful line? Um, Psalm 65, I think it is, uh, where clearly the psalmist is aware that sunrise and sunset 
carry a peculiar quality to them. And it's we know that uh, it's because as the sun is slanting through the Earth's atmosphere, uh, more of the atmosphere, the particular kind of color and the angle of the light and so on, make everything look as though there are several different dimensions going on. So when we get you know, the beginning of the week, the first day of the week, it's still dark, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb and then stuff starts to happen. We are aware this is a sunrise moment and it's in a garden and there's something new happening and the freshness of that, uh, uh, as I think I say in the book, a great writer doesn't say it was so beautiful. A great writer shows you how it's beautiful, makes you say it's really beautiful. And I think that's one of the many, many things that John is doing in that passage. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just, I love too the, the, the uh, emphasis you place on life bursting forth into a world still framed by death in that, yes. in that moment. It's, it's, Beautiful. <laughs> just, Thank just you. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, um, so I know we're, we're, we're wrapping up on our time here, but I wanted to hit on one more signpost uh, because it was the most challenging one for me uh, for very personal reasons. Um, and that is that of power. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Marty and I, the way we met is we worked in a church together uh, that was less than stellar um, where <laughs> things like spiritual abuse, uh, verbal abuse, things like that, came from power. Um, and also, I have a lot of issues uh, with power today within America in our context. And so it was a challenging um, signpost for me because I kind of want to lean more towards go away power, <laughs> you know, leave me alone. Um, but I think you, you brought some really helpful uh, ideas there. Yes, I, I mean, it's all very well to say go away power, leave me alone. But as we know, if we stop and think about even recent modern history, let alone the whole sweep of history, um, anarchy is usually even worse than tyranny. I mean, tyranny is terrible, but anarchy is multiply terrible. Because if you have anarchy, you just have a lot of smaller tyrants, thugs, um, who can do what they like. Um, if, If you don't have a decent police force, you will have vigilante groups roaming the streets and vigilante groups historically have not been too careful about who they pick up and lynch as long as it's somebody because they're angry, um, because they feel powerless. Guess what? And this is why in Romans 12 and 13, at the end of Romans 12, Paul is very emphatic that private vengeance is a no-no. That must be ruled out because in Romans 13, God appoints people in a society to do justice, to keep the thing in order. Even Jesus in John 19, I think I bring this out in the book, says to Pontius Pilate that he, Pontius Pilate, has a God-given authority over him, Jesus. That is one of the most extraordinary statements anywhere in scripture. But then, of course, he says, therefore, the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. In other words, God wants his world to be ruled wisely and justly, but God will hold to account those to whom this responsibility is uh, accorded, is is delegated. 
Um, and that's something which we in the modern West have found it very difficult to get our heads around because of course, the great revolutions of the 18th century, i.e. America and France, and the would-be revolutions of subsequent uh, times, the, some of the great ones in the middle of the 19th century in Germany and then the Russian revolution um, in 1917 were all about getting rid of tyrants. And we've lived on this myth that all you have to do is topple the tyrants and then humans will naturally go into a mode of, of, of freedom and peace and, and everyone being happy, etc. Um, but that's a complete myth. It just doesn't work like that. And the last 10 years in the Middle East have shown that again and again and again. Anarchy is a terrible thing. And we actually, none of us want anarchy. You know, I, I don't know if I say it in this book, but I've said it often enough before. If I'm driving too fast down the road and the cop pulls me over and gives me a ticket and I have to pay a fine and get points on my license, I am furious with that cop. How dare you? I wasn't hurting anyone. I was actually quite safe. Da, 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 da. But if somebody breaks into my house and steals my television set or my computer or something, I want to be able to call the cops. I don't want to have to get my friends and go down the street with clubs and sticks and see if we can find the villain and beat him up. Um, so, so we actually, all of us, want there to be some order in society. Everybody knows that. And the problem is when you give people that responsibility of bringing order to society, you hand them the temptation to be petty tyrants or even not so petty tyrants. And that is so in a democracy, it's so with a modern police force, but can you live without them? Can you live with them? That's the question. And so then looking at the New Testament's redefinition of power, and I've been fascinated by this for years. I, Mark chapter 10 is a favorite of mine because James and John want to sit at Jesus' right and left hand when he comes in glory. They want to be the men with the real power and, and they'll look after Jesus. They'll do his business for him. And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're talking about. And Mark clearly is looking ahead to the crucifixion scene where there are two very different people at Jesus' right and his left when he is enthroned in his kingly power. And then Jesus redefines power itself. If anyone wants to be first among you, they must be the slave of all. If anyone wants to be the chief, they should be the least because the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45, you get the atonement theology within the redefinition of power. And if you, as we've done, if you, you try to get atonement without thinking about how power is being redefined, you will misunderstand it and vice versa. And John's gospel lays that all out and says, this is the way of true power. And of course it goes with true justice, true love, true freedom, etc., etc. Uh, it, it's an amazing theme, but I'm very glad you said what you did because so many people are exactly where you are. We have seen power abused. We want to get rid of it. And the answer is hmm, every revolutionary starts like that. And usually they end up as tyrants instead. How can we break that cycle? And the answer is only the gospel has a model for doing that. Yeah, that man, it, that <laughs> reminds me of, of, of language that, um, Greg Boyd uses, he talks about a power under rather than a power over. Um, okay. Yes, yeah, power is like service and um, yeah, rather than like a lording over kind of yes. uh, threat of violence. Curiously, one of the most striking examples of, of that statement that I met was when a friend in the military showed me the handbook for young army officers. And you'd have thought, well, that's all about top-down power, if ever there was. 
But the whole thing was about, if you want to get these 20 people in your small squad to do what on the field of battle, what you tell them to, you have to spend months getting to know them, serving them, finding out what the problem is at home, um, being with them when there's a, a domestic tragedy or whatever it is, because only if you are serving them and giving yourself to them, will they actually want to do what you tell them to when the time comes. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? In the military, they, and this is very pragmatic, um, you know, they want to be able to have an officer say, okay, now's the time we're going to do this, this and this, and have these people unquestioningly obey. But that'll only happen if they trust the person concerned. And mm -hmm. that will only happen if they have literally been loving and serving them in the meantime. Now, whatever one thinks of war and military, etc., I thought that was a very revealing observation. Mm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So as, as we kind of, as we kind of wrap things up, Tom, I, I wanted to ask you uh, more on a personal level, level, as you wrote this book, um, what was your favorite signpost or what was like the most powerful and transforming aspect of writing this book for you is like, what grew in you in, as you wrote this? That, that's a good question. And it's, it's hard to say because some of these things I've been thinking about for a long time yeah. And so it was a matter of just easing them in and figuring out. And others came to me quite new when I was mapping it out and so on. I, I think my favorite moment in all the all the book, and this may not surprise you, is the opening of the beauty chapter, because I wrote this book in February, um, uh, 18 months ago. My wife was away for a week or 10 days and uh, she was visiting family down south and I was up alone in Scotland. And I had a week um, when I needed to do the basic thing and uh, it was cold February mornings and the beginning of that beauty chapter, which is two hours before dawn. So it was probably about five o'clock in the morning and I was writing this and I went and stood outside our house and where we lived in Scotland had this amazing view out over the sea. And there was the moon rising with the planets and so on. And I just stood, oh, I have to write a chapter on beauty today. This is a good place to start. And so I eventually had to come back in. It was very cold and I made some coffee or whatever. And I wrote that paragraph and then I went back out and of course it had clouded over and the scene had gone. But that, that scene about the moon and the planets and the geese rising and so on, um, that, that sticks with me as, as a wonderful moment. It was actually a very painful time. I was, um, at that point, I was still very much working through my grief at my mother's death, which was eight months before, and all sorts of things. I mean, grief is a very odd business, as I'm sure you guys know. And even though I have ministered to people who are grieving, and I know in theory what it's like, when it actually hits you, it's always kind of different, and it does unexpected things. And at the time I was writing that, I was very overwhelmed with various different degrees of sadness about things. So a lot of this book about the broken signposts was coming very much home to me at a time of, of, I don't know whether I would use the phrase personal brokenness, perhaps I should, a sense of grief, a sense of everything having gone wrong, even though many things in my life had not gone wrong, but being overwhelmed by the grief, I think enabled me to get inside the lament, which is there with the broken signposts, and then to be able, hopefully, to hold on to them and come through the other side. Yeah, I like that. It, that I actually, as, as you were 
talking about that just now, and I've, I kind of know where you were in Scotland at the time. I have a few friends that go to University of St. Andrews. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yeah, and so they and they have talked about the um, the cloudiness and the cold and the raininess and kind of what that feels like for them. But at the same time, though, so I, I understand the, the beauty in the moment to have an opportunity to see the moon and to actually be able to see that clearly is important. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> although, although yeah, it's funny because I think um, people in England tend to think that it always rains in Scotland, but in fact, the rainfall in St. Andrews is a little less than the rainfall in London, um, because that bit of eastern Scotland has its own microclimate. It's, it can still get very cold, of course, we're by the North Sea. If you get the east wind, oh, watch out, um, put on all your coats. <laughs> it's a wonderful place. A wonderful place. Yeah. yeah. Well, Tom, this has uh, been absolutely enjoyable and wonderful. Cool. I greatly appreciate your time. Um, your, uh, your work has been more influential on me personally uh, than anybody else's. I'm sure you can see my, my shelf here. is <laughs> rather full. Um, well, great. So thank you for that and, and for the contributions that you have made and that you continue to make um, in, in just shaping the, the, the faith of people and, and helping them cling to Jesus, as uh, we like to say here at Rethinking Faith. That's, um, clinging to Jesus sounds a good idea to me. <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys very much for all you're doing. Keep up the good work and I'll talk to you again one day. Yes, sir. Yes. Take care. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Bye bye then. Bye bye. Yes.